Well, good morning to the First Baptist family. I am joining you by video this morning. I'm having a, a minor medical procedure this week, but I thought it would be wise, just in case I'm not ready to hit the ground running on Sunday, to have a bit of a backup plan. So if you're watching this, you know that we had to go with the backup plan today. But we have a lot of great teachers and leaders on our staff, and I don't mean to hog the platform, but this Beatles series is so very personal to me. I felt like it would be unfair to try to hand this off to somebody else. And so I wanna join you by video this morning, but I do want us to lean into the scripture, which I'm gonna to introduce to us here in just a moment, and also get a little bit of a feel for the song that you're about to hear. So let's go. We're gonna be in Mark chapter two this morning, but I wanna back up and take a running start in Mark chapter one. Jesus is beginning his public ministry, his ministry of three years. Jesus has just spent a day, as you get toward the end of Mark chapter one, he spent a day teaching and healing a large number of people. And so in Mark chapter one, verse 35, it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus went to a solitary place and he prayed. Jesus needed to get alone with the Father for two reasons. Number one, he was exhausted, and he needed some kind of refueling that sleep itself could not provide. And so Jesus, being exhausted, goes to the Father to seek power. But the other reason Jesus did this, not only was he exhausted, but Jesus was facing the growing expectations of other people. Listen, the louder life becomes, the more we need to learn to listen to the still, small voice of God. Thomas Edison and his second wife, Mina, they both learned Morse code so that when they were in a large group of people together, they could tap into the palm of each other's hands and they could communicate with one another. That's a beautiful picture of when, when life gets busy, when life gets loud, we need to have that connection with God that we listen to his still, small voice. So because of exhaustion, because of the expectations, Jesus spends time alone with the Father. And then, the beginning of that next day, Jesus begins to teach and heal again. So what follows on the heels of this Mark chapter 1, verse 35, are two healings. Okay? One is at the end of chapter 1. Another would be at the beginning of chapter 2, which is going to be our focus for this morning. But here's the difference of these two healings I want you to see. At the end of Mark chapter one, a man with leprosy approaches Jesus for healing. That man can get there on his own. He can get there under his own power. He is ambulatory, right? So sometimes we can get to Jesus on our own. But the next healing in Mark chapter two, we're gonna see a man who couldn't get to Jesus on his own, that he needed the help of other people he couldn't get by without a little help from his friends. So let's talk about this song that you're about to hear in, in just a moment. Um, obviously, a big theme of songs, any artist you look at is love. The opposite theme that we often pick up on a lot of music is loneliness. And when it comes to the Beatles catalog, the Beatles anthology, there's a lot of songs about loneliness that we could have played today. In fact, um, one of the songs that almost made my list was Eleanor Rigby, All the Lonely People, Where Do They All Come From? Can I give you a sidebar on this song? Thank you, I am anyway. Eleanor Rigby 
actually where, where Paul and John first met and they started performing together in St. Peter's Church in Liverpool, uh, there's a graveyard in front of that church. And one of the tombstones in the graveyard, it says Eleanor Rigby. She actually died in the 1930s. And John and Paul, they, when they wrote this song later, they weren't intentionally lifting that name. They must have walked through that cemetery many times and somehow that name just embedded itself in their minds. Eleanor Rigby died in a church and was buried alone with her name. And nobody came. Loneliness is a huge theme in a lot of songs, particularly the Beatles. But I wanted this to be a little more encouraging, a little more uplifting. Instead of talking about loneliness, let's talk about community. And so here's this song. I get by with a little help from my friends. I believe it's the only song where Ringo sings lead. And he had trouble, you know, his voice was not as good as Paul or John or George. And, and he had trouble landing all of these notes. Here, here's the cool thing about this. At the very end, that last series of notes, Ringo had a real tough time landing the plane, landing the song. John and Paul worked with him for two hours until he finally got it right. So as he sings this song, he is surrounded by a little help from his friends. If I sang out of tune, would you stand up and walk out with me? Lend me your ear, I'll sing you a song. I would try not sing out of key. Whoa, oh, I get by with a little help from my friend. I get by with a little help from my friend. I'm gonna try with a little help from my friend. Somebody to love Oh, get by with a little 
So now we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. So let's, let's walk through this passage and see an individual who needed the help of his friends. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, a few days later, Jesus again entered Capernaum. Now I want to stop here for just a moment. The Sea of Galilee, which is at the northern edge of the Holy Land, uh, the Sea of Galilee where, where Jesus met these fishermen, Peter, James, and John, right on the north shore is this town called Capernaum, and it seems that this was Jesus' home. This was the base for at least the first part of his ministry. So when he entered Capernaum, the people heard he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So let me set this up here just a moment. Here's a small home in Capernaum, probably Jesus' home. This was his um, residence. People were packing around, and there's no more room for people to get in. But, verse 3, some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof by digging through it. So, in an ancient Middle Eastern home, it would basically be a one-room dwelling, but it would have a staircase going up the outside, which would give you access to the roof. The roof was used at night, especially in hot nights. People would sleep outside. They would sleep under the stars. They would sleep under the constellations. But these men decided since they couldn't get in the house to get to Jesus, they took this external staircase. They went up to the roof, and it says they began to dig through the roof. So, again, this is different construction than our own day. Instead of plywood and uh, shingles, the roof would be pretty much matted earth, that you would have a, a lattice work of sticks and twigs and grass, and it would be a mud roof. And so the men carrying their friend up here, trying to get him to Jesus, decide to start digging through the roof, which means it would be loud, it would be messy, and as Jesus is teaching, all of a sudden the roof literally begins to come down in over their heads. I don't know if you've ever worked with sheetrock, but in the few times that I've have, and I forgot to put on a face mask, it just gets all in your nose. It gets in every pore and every crevice of your face. It's everywhere. Imagine that kind of dirt raining down, coming down, and Jesus looks up at this opening now in the ceiling and sees a man on a stretcher, suspended, being lowered down by his four friends. Digging through it, they lowered the mat, the man was lying on. So here's when I stop for just a moment. And of course, the theme here is community and helping one another and being with one another. As I visualize this scene, I see this mat coming down through the ceiling and four men holding the four corners as they suspend this man as they move him toward Jesus. So in my mind, I just saw that as a picture and I go, how do we, you and I, how do we support people as we want to move them closer to Jesus? What are the four corners that we can hang on to to bring them closer to Jesus? Here they are. First of all, pray for people. Pray for people. I often call this, and I use the old Quaker phrase, to hold somebody in the light. Whenever somebody sends you an email or a text message or they just come to mind, why don't you take that as an opportunity just to hold them there in the presence of God? What I've often said before, don't plan to pray, just pray. And then let people know. I did this this morning. A friend of mine texted me, and I just, I just, he was concerned about me, so 
So I responded and I, I said, I've used your text message this morning as an opportunity to pray for you and your family by name. And I, I just held them in the light. I stopped. I put down my phone for just a second and just held them in the light. One way to serve people, one way we serve one another is to pray for one another. Second, kind of the second corner we can hold on to as we, as we move people into the presence of Jesus is offer good counsel. I came across a phrase this week in my reading that sometimes churches suffer from destructive niceness. Let's just hang on to that phrase here for just a minute. Destructive niceness. What does that mean? That means that somebody is, is maybe doing something wrong or doing something not the best way and um, you feel like you ought to say something but you don't want to be rude and so you don't say anything or you just kind of pat them on the back and move on. That's destructive niceness. To let somebody else continue down a path that's not good and we not say anything. Now, I'm not encouraging us as followers of Jesus to be rude, but I am encouraging us to be real. And this is pretty simple. Sometimes when people come to me for counsel or advice, um, they'll give me what's going on and they'll say, what do you think? And I just might say, do I have your permission to be honest with you? Now, some people don't want that and that's fine. But if you ask permission, if you have to say it in such a way that they will hear it though. So this is not about being rude, it's about being real. Uh, by the way, one of my other favorite bands besides the Beatles is, Beatles is the Eagles. And the Eagles, when they started uh, their touring again with the Hell Freezes Over tour back in the 1990s, they developed what's called the circle of fear. Before they would go out on tour, they'd recorded all their music, but it didn't mean that they knew how to perform it live. They would sit together with their guitars around a circle and they would learn every note of every song and when they would get it wrong, they would point it out to one another. It's a circle of fear. That's what the church ought to be. It should be a circle of fear, a circle of trust that we here can be honest with one another in counsel. So we pray, we give wise counsel to one another. What's another corner that we hang on to? Listen to people. There's a time to speak, says Ecclesiastes, and a time to be silent. There's a time to give counsel, and then there's time just to listen. And the older I get as a pastor, I think the more I'm learning this, that asking a good question, letting people share their hearts and their minds, eventually they'll kind of stumble on and they'll discover for themselves what they need to do just by saying it out loud. Don't underestimate the power of listening. And then, fourth corner, serve one another. There's, there's praying for other people. And by the way, prayer is very practical. There is giving counsel, there's listening to other people, but then also serving. Is there a very practical way that I can help this person Maybe it's mowing their lawn. Maybe it's picking up their prescriptions. Maybe it's dropping them a note. What, whatever it is, is there a practical way that I can serve this person as they're going through whatever challenging time that they're going through? I've told you before, one of my ways of telling people I love them is just to say, here to serve. That's what we ought to be saying to one another and to the world. So these are, if you can imagine, four corners. I thought about developing a graphic, but I think it's better just to envision it in your mind. Here's this mat coming down and four people holding on to four corners. It's a very practical way. We pray, we give counsel, we listen, we serve. 
that's why we help one another or how we help one another. Now, it occurred to me, though, uh, as I'm thinking about these four corners, those are four people bringing a person closer to Christ, supporting him, suspending him there. It doesn't work, though, without the fifth person. It doesn't work without the person who is actually in need lying on the mat. So, I want to talk first of all to those of you who you've been lying on the mat for far too long. You've let other people pray and counsel and listen and serve, and maybe you've kind of have begun a lifestyle of letting other people serve you, which is not wrong for a season, but there's times, listen to me, where you need to get up off your mat where you need to start serving other people instead of expecting others to serve you. So if you whine or complain too much or you're always asking for favors, it may be time for you to get up off the mat and start serving someone else and you'll be amazed at how light your own problems become. But then I wanna talk to the other side. There are some of you that you would bend over backwards and serve other people, but you won't let anyone serve you. And maybe it's time for you to lay on the mat and let others pray for you, listen to you, counsel you, serve you. I know it's hard to do that sometimes, but you know what it is? It means that we have to swallow our pride. And we have to be the ones to lay down on the mat and let others serve us for a change. And by the way, we know the reward we get from serving others. Why would you deprive somebody else of that? Can I mention one more thing before we move on? So I was walking in the neighborhood this last week and a, a friend of mine comes around the corner and he had his dog with him. And uh, it's been a while since I've seen this friend, so I just reached down to pet his dog and the dog snapped at me, very nearly bit my hand, right? Just, uh, I surprised the dog, I moved too quick and my friend said this, he's a rescue. Right there, he told me everything that I needed to hear, that evidently in this dog's past, he had been hurt by humans. And so anytime a person reaches out, his first reaction is to snap. But then my friend said this, give him a minute, let him smell you, let him come to you, and he'll be your best friend. So I sat down on the curb and let the dog sniff my hand, and two minutes later, that dog was all over me, licking me, right? I had to let him come to me. That being said, we're all rescues, aren't we? We all have been wounded in the past by people, some more than others. And sometimes you're going to try to serve people, and their first reaction is they're going to snap at you. It's not because of you. It's a reaction. It's a response that they've learned in the past. And so as we serve people, if they snap at us, we love them anyway. All right, so those are the four corners. Well, I took a little bit of time on that, didn't I? Here we go. Now, now here's to the, the theological point. This is very practical, very community. But then this is not just about the four friends. This is about who Jesus is. So um, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know if four people just cut through my roof if I'd be so quick to forgive, but that's Jesus, not me. Verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? We're going to handle a couple of questions in this passage here in just a minute, but this first question uh, maybe is, is the most insightful as to understanding who Jesus is because these theologians are exactly right. There is only one person who can forgive sins, and that is God alone. So if Jesus is speaking forgiveness, that says something about his 
true identity, doesn't it? Well, immediately, verse 8, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he says, why are you thinking these things? So here's the second question. I want to pause here for just a minute, do a little sidebar. Um, If you have a negative attitude, constantly have negative thoughts about God, about other people, about the church, why are you thinking these things? Nobody is forcing you to always be negative. Nobody is forcing you to be cynical. No one is forcing you to always assume the worst and not the best. Why are you thinking these things? You don't have to. You can begin to rewire your thoughts. And as you see God working, as you see people's lives changing, you can be positive and not negative. Why are you thinking these things? And then Jesus asked another question. Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? So this is the most elusive of the questions here. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your mat and walk? So let's try to to answer that question. Which is easier to say? The reality is, neither one of them is hard to say at all. In fact, they were both equally easy, but one is more important than the other. Certainly physical healing, that is important. I mean, if you've been sick, if you've dealt with pain, you know the value and the necessity of healing. But physical ailment is temporary. What's on the inside, our spirit, that's eternal. So both of these things are easy to say. One just happens to be more important than the other. Listen, the biggest issue at foot in your life today is not your career, it's not your income, it's not where you live, it's not what you face this week. The biggest issue in life right now, it's even more important than your family, is forgiveness. Now, I want to talk about Christian forgiveness here for just a moment because I, I, th- I think we may have some misconceptions. Maybe you don't, but I want to clear this up. When we come to Christ, when we understand what He's done on the cross for us, that His blood forgives our sins, it's through His death and His resurrection that we receive the forgiveness of God. He paid the debt of death that was rightly ours to pay. And when we come to His life, we inherit that. So, when we come to Christ, we ask kind of a one-time-for-all forgiveness. Please forgive me of my sins, past, present, and future. And God honors that prayer. He forgives us of every sin we have committed or will commit. There's complete forgiveness. But not only do we need to pray for forgiveness once, it has to be something that is ongoing on a daily basis. Let me encourage you as a part of your daily prayers, as a part of that going off to a solitary place by yourself and praying, ask God for forgiveness. It's a daily encounter where we acknowledge our sins and shortcomings and we repent and we keep turning back to Him. Now, some people get overly scrupulous with this and say, oh, do I have to remember every sin? I've got to remember every single thing I do. Well, here's why I am here, what I think to be wise counsel. Those sins that you can remember, confess them specifically. 
But then pray something like this. God, there are some sins that I probably have forgotten and maybe didn't even register at the time. If you would bring those to mind, I'll repent of them. If, if they're, they're big, bring them to mind. But if not, I trust you for that too. Where my memory fails, your forgiveness is still in force. So, Jesus speaks forgiveness, which is easier. Well, it's, it's easier. It's just as easy to heal and to forgive, but one is more important than the other. But, this is verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, this is a very dense theological statement here. Jesus uses a phrase for himself. This was his self-adopted title, Son of Man. It's from the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7. It's kind of this uh, ambiguous title, not sure what this is. Is this God? Is this Israel? Is this a human being? What is this title, Son of Man? And I think Jesus is being intentionally vague here because people still haven't figured out quite who he is. But what he wants you to know is this, that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. So in order for us to encounter forgiveness, we need to grasp a couple of things. We need to grasp Jesus's true identity. And when he says son of man, we understand this now in light of the resurrection that he is God in the flesh. And the Son of Man, not only that is his true identity, but his intimacy with us allows forgiveness. It, it, when he says the Son of Man, he's, um, he's not only saying who I am, but he says, I in person have the ability to forgive your sins. I don't know what you've done in the past, how you've been hurt, or who you have hurt. But I know this, that there is no sin that you have ever committed that the Son of Man, that Jesus Christ, cannot forgive and make whole again. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This, this miracle was a sign of not only his physical healing, but his spiritual healing as well. And everyone was amazed and praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this before. So I have a couple of challenges for you today. First of all, kind of picture that mat, that cot again, and think about how you can serve others. Think about if you've been laying in that mat too long. Think about how um, you know, maybe you need to get up off that mat, or you need to allow yourself to be served by others. We are called to be a community together. No one is greater than anyone else. We serve one another. But then what does it mean not only to put yourself into the hands of other people and be served, but to put yourself in the hands of God? So this is a story by Barbara Brown Taylor. It's actually one of my favorite stories. She was walking, uh, her and her husband Ed were exploring the dunes on Cumberland Island it's one of the barrier islands between the Atlantic Ocean and the mainland of southern, southern Georgia. Uh, Ed was looking for fossilized teeth, and she was looking for other things on the beach. But what they were unprepared for is they stumbled on a huge loggerhead turtle. Again, this was mid-morning. Let me just read the rest of this so I don't butcher it. Here's what Barbara Brown Taylor writes. 
Um, this loggerhead turtle, she was still alive, but just barely. Her shell was hot to the touch from the noonday sun. We both knew what had happened. She had come ashore during the night to lay her eggs, and when she had finished, she had looked around for the brightest spot on the horizon to lead her back to the sea. But mistaking the distant lights on the mainland for the sky reflected on the ocean, she went the wrong direction. Judging by her tracks, she had dragged herself through the sand until her flippers were buried and she could go no further. We found her where she had given up, half cooked by the sun, but still able to turn one eye up and to look at us when we bent over her. So I buried her in the cool sand while Ed ran to the ranger station. An hour later, she was on her back with tire chains around her legs, being dragged behind the park service jeep back toward the ocean. The dunes were so deep that her mouth filled with sand as she went. Her head bent back so far underneath her that I feared her neck would break. Finally, the jeep stopped at the water's edge. Ed and I helped the ranger unchain her and flip her over. Then all three of us watched as she lay motionless there in the surf. Every wave brought her life back to her, washing the sand from her eyes, making her shell shine again. When a particularly large one broke over her, she lifted her head and tried her back legs. The next wave made her light enough to find her footing, and she pushed off back into the water that was her home. Watching her swim slowly away after her nightmare ride through the dunes, I noticed, listen to this, that sometimes it's hard to tell whether you are being killed or being saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. Will you let the hands of Jesus turn your life upside down? Where there's unforgiveness to find forgiveness. Where you're paralyzed to find movement again. Where you're hopeless to find hope and joy and peace and love. And you just never know that maybe Jesus will flip your life upside down by using other followers of Jesus. And that's why we need a little help from our friends.